Last week, we launched our new teaching series on the book of Ruth, Going into the Unknown. We started by looking at Ruth chapter 1, verse 16, the theme verse for the study. And we, what we learned about Ruth was someone going into the unknown by faith, but wanted to follow Naomi's people and be a part of Naomi's God. And so now we come to Ruth chapter 1, and we're going to launch here today into what, uh, what we find here that's taking place in the story as it is being laid out here in Ruth 1. Now, I don't know really what's going on in everybody's heart and mind today. Um, I know that the weekends can be very busy. Uh, yesterday, Natalie and I and mom and dad and then the girls and some buddies of uh, Bailey, we were in Orlando Friday night, Saturday, and we were celebrating Bailey's 10th birthday. Uh, she is 10 years old and needs to just slow down. Um, but, uh, boy, that's a lot of fun uh, until you realize you stay up late with girls chitter-chattering and giggling and all that, and, and then you get back into town, you get everybody back home and situated, and, and then you try to get yourself geared up. And so I showed up this morning ready to go, um, just excited about what God's going to do through his text today. Um, but I'm tired, and I think you are too, because I'm trying to, trying to pull a little out of you this morning. I'm trying to say a few funny things, and I know my staff tells me I'm corny. I know. I get it, right? So I know that I'm getting to that age. I'm now in my 40s, and that's when dads get real corny. I remember that with my dad. I mean, that started from day one with him. But, you know, all of us are just... It really tired today. So it's really our mind, we entune our heart with his, and we do ask God to use this time purposely for us so that we don't just go through motions, but that God will teach us something very important today. Um, so I want to start with thinking kind of along the lines of, of where we are with, with this topic today. You know, no one, no one likes to face um, a crisis in their life. And, and But the truth is, is all of us in here probably have faced one or many crises before. Some of you maybe are going through one right now in your life. And there's some very common threads that are woven into all of our crises that we can really find ourselves relating with one another, though uh, our stories are very different. There's still some common bonds in all of those. Pain is one of them. We think of emotional pain going through our crisis. We think of sometimes even physical pain, mental pain, spiritual pain. Then there's the, the loss, the loss of something or the loss of someone. Um, that's, a, that's a hard thing to go through. That's a crisis. Another common thread is, is the grief, whether it's a short-term grief or a long-term grief. Maybe it's uncertainty, like Ruth, going into the unknown or just an unfamiliar territory for you as an individual, or for you as a family. There's the struggle that you have to know real peace or to find Christ in the middle of all of this or the struggle to know where to turn and how to respond in this crisis. And then the common thread that we all have within our own crisis is that um, it's the D words. There's discouragement which leads to despair, which can lead to depression, which then causes desperation. Uh, there's a lot of different things that are in our crises collectively together that we commonly identify with as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. But then there's also on the positive side, as followers of Jesus, as believers in him, we also find some common bonds going through our crises. 
And, and that is learning how to trust in a sovereign God who is in complete control. Or finding a perfect peace that can only come with our eyes fixed on him. There's gaining strength in an all-powerful God. There is looking and searching and finding wisdom from above. Finding comfort from the Holy Spirit of God. And so all of this are different responses to our individual crisis and the stories that we tell. So Ruth chapter 1 is going to jump right into, uh, into this, this crisis that is taking place in the first five verses. And we know the book of Ruth, it's, a, it's like a fairy tale except for it's true. And it's all of a sudden we would say that this, this story has some very troubled introductions the storm clouds are rolling in, and it's a very dark and troubled introduction to this story. Um, the, what seemed to be a small compromise by Elimelech and Naomi and their family has become a deadly crisis in their life. And so what we learn from these first six characters of the story is the crisis we all should avoid. The crisis we all should avoid. And, uh, and so we're going to read together. Uh, from the book of, of Ruth. Now, one of the things they teach you in pulpit speech in Bible college is always mark your text with a bookmark before you get up there in case you can't remember where the book of Ruth is. Where is Ruth? Somebody give me a Bible. Who's already there? Ruth chapter one. Where? Joshua judges Ruth. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Wow. It was one of those brain freeze. It was a long weekend. All right. So Ruth chapter one. There we go. Thank you. Thank you for being there. All right, Ruth chapter 1. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife Naomi, the name of his two sons, Malon and Chilion. They were of Bethlehem, Judah, and they came into the country of Moab and continued there. And Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left and her two sons. And they took them wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. And they dwelled there about ten years. And Malon and Chilion died also, both of them. And the woman was left of her two sons and her husband. Hmm. So the crisis we all should avoid. The crisis, by the way, is, is not death. That's not the crisis that we should all avoid. We're going to see from the very beginning of this dark introduction that Elimelech made a decision for his family to leave God's will and God's way, and that was the crisis. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, as we dig into this text, we do desperately seek for your wisdom. I, I do want you to, to give us the message from above, help our, our minds to be clear Help me not to be a distraction from the text and from the message that you want for us to learn from today. So, Lord, use this time to strengthen our lot of each us and apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, there are a lot of details that go into this story that are not recorded in this passage. We look at the first five verses and you think, wow, thanks, Pastor. Where are we headed this morning? This is a pretty discouraging outlook. This is going to be a real disappointing text to start with. But just like with any good story, there's always the background, there's the details. 
How does Ruth go into the unknown? Well, there's some really solid foundations that are laid for how she enters into the scene and some of the things that she's going to suffer as consequences by other people's decisions and other people's actions. And so the reading of these first five verses, yeah, they're a little depressing, but there's something very important for us to learn as we study them. And as we look at these five verses throughout the entire story of of Ruth, this is the only section that does not mention God. It does not reference any, any wisdom from God. It doesn't do anything to seek for God, doesn't include God in any way. These is, this is the only she- section throughout the whole book that has eliminated God, not mentioning him or consulting him. And so the crisis that we should all avoid in verse number one right away is this decision that caused the crisis to happen. In verse number one, it came to pass in those days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. Many Bible scholars believe this would have been the famine that's recorded in Judges chapter six. And then a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, he went to sojourn, a temporary word, in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. You know what's taking place here is that there's grass that is greener on the other side. As a as a teenager, or maybe even a little bit before that, fourth, fifth, and sixth grade, I remember driving down Lakeland Highlands Road, and it used to be two lanes back then. How many of you remember Lakeland Highlands as two lanes? And then, even be- with that in mind, there was no elementary school, there was no condos, apartment complex, and it was just a bunch of pastures. Anybody remember those days as well, okay? So I remember as a family, we would drive to church, and we would come this way, or we'd drive to school, and I remember looking and watching the horses, and I remember watching the cows and seeing what they were doing, and I remember one day in particular, as we were driving, there was a horse that was sticking his long neck through the fence, the barbed wire fence, and all of a sudden, his long tongue was coming out, and what he was trying to do was eat grass on the other side of the fence. It was something that he wanted so desperately, and I remember looking behind the horse and thinking, that poor guy, he's got nothing good to eat. But yet behind him was a ton of good green grass for him to munch on. But he wanted something even better on the other side of the fence. We know that phrase. We know that thought. And we know the struggle that even comes into our own life where we think that grass is greener on the other side. And if we're not careful, we begin to live our life. We compare ourselves among ourselves, looking for something bigger and better, always looking to compare. We compare ourselves among ourselves. And Sometimes we think of how much better life would be if I just had a a different job with a bigger paycheck or if I drove a newer model vehicle. We think that life would be easier if I could go to a different school with better engaged teachers and a friendlier staff. Maybe we'd say that life would be more fulfilling if I had better health or a more attentive spouse in my marriage, or if I had well-behaved children, or maybe I had a wider circle of friends. We say, I would, uh, maybe I would get more out of church if I, if I had more from this or more from that, if they sang more of my favorites on just the other side. And that's where Elimelech is. That's kind of how things come into place here. So many times the motivation of our thought process of seeing the grass to be greener on the other side or anywhere else for that matter is that when we, we, pro, we, we pronounce that problems are caused in our life and we say that we're going to be quick to conclude that certainly God would not want me to not be happy. I mean, have you ever struggled with that thought? I mean, would God really not want me to be fulfilled or to be happy? And we have to be really careful because I think there's a little kid song that we teach our kids and all of a sudden they're ingrained, Jesus wants everybody happy, happy, happy and doesn't want anybody sad. 
And all of a sudden, we grow up with that mentality then that says, for me to be happy means that everything that I desire should come to fruition. Everything that I want should happen. And this story here is, is a false confidence that says, God wants everybody to have what they want, what they need. And, and they say, isn't the, green, the grass greener? And if, if, isn't that God's clear evidence of leading in my life? I, I mean... God doesn't want me to stay here where I have to uh, suffer or where I have to sacrifice because there are other opportunities and I'm going to pursue that. Now, please understand, sometimes those opportunities are God's pushing. Sometimes those new opportunities are God's leading and God's open door. But in our story today with Elimelech in Bethlehem who's going through a famine the answer for, for them as a family was not, let's just get up and move out of hometown Bethlehem and let's go live among the pagans in Moab. Let's go live among the pagans where they will influence our life and our family. So we can't just say, isn't greener grass the clear evidence of God's leading? Irma Bombeck, she had a humorous way of summing up this myth when she entitled her book, The Grass is Always Greener Over the Septic Tank. Uh, 1978, she published that book. Uh, some of you might remember that. But um, what ends up happening then is it looks so promising, so rewarding, but you have no idea what's underneath and what the cost, the real cost, will really be. Here in our text with Elimelech, he, he no doubt, this man and his wife with their two sons, they're, they're facing a genuine crisis. The real crisis is that uh, there's, a, there's a famine going on in Bethlehem, and the cupboards are bare. The hay loft is, is uh, empty. So they don't have food to eat. They don't have supplies for their animals. They're living in constant fear that the Midianites are going to come in and attack them, steal their cattle, or even worse, kill them. Uh, it's a time in their life, Judges 6, 7, when you, when you study that text, you would find that this is a time of, of a lot of instability. Morality is, is, is shot out the window. There's no religious discernment taking place. So so the people are in, in upheaval. There's a lot of problems that are taking place. And Elimelech looks at Naomi and his two sons and he says, the grass is greener in Moab. We're not happy here. We're, we're sacrificing here. We're suffering here. There's got to be an answer. Now the irony in the Hebrew language here would have been immediately reckless. They would have found the, the, the satire or the, the, the irony here, the paradox and because there's a famine in the land and a man from Bethlehem. Bethlehem meant a house of bread. And so what the author here, Samuel, is writing is he is saying that the bread basket of Judah is empty. He is saying that people who live in the house of bread, they're going hungry. So there's a famine in the house of bread. That's like saying um, there's an increase in gang warfare in the city of love, Philadelphia. It's, it's like a paradox, which I'm sure it's happening. Um, or it's saying like there's, there's a, a higher level of demonic powers in the uh, city of angels, Los Angeles. So it's, it's that's kind of paradox. There's a famine, there is no food in the house of bread. So this paradoxing implications here. What is the irony that has lived out in your life? Maybe it's a Christian home that lives in the world and for the world. Maybe it's a sanctified mission that is derailed by selfishness. Or maybe it's a spirit-filled life that looks for personal gain. 
You see, these, these don't go together. These are complete opposite of one another. And so when you make a decision to look for greener grass apart from God's will and leading, it will lead to a new, another crisis in your life. In verse number two, it continues with the people of the crisis. And there are six key players in the drama so far, but only three of them survive by verse number five. The patriarch of the family, Elimelech, which his name means God is my king. Unfortunately, he does not live up to his name at all. And so he led his family of four away from Bethlehem to the city of Moab. Now remember, Moab was a place of pagan gods. We talked about this last week, that they're pagan god. They, they gave human sacrifices, and as well as they pushed immorality. And so there, he's moving from Bethlehem to this city of Moab, to this place of pagan gods, immorality, and wickedness against God. And so his wife, Naomi, which means gracious one, she is the mother of Malon and Chilion. Now, here's something interesting about these two characters. The two sons, they make a brief entrance onto the scene, but in Hebrew, their names rhyme. Okay, They don't in our English text, but their names in Hebrew rhyme, which means that there's a pretty good indication that they would have been twins but now, when you look at the meaning of their names, Naomi was not being very discerning or looking for real purpose with their names. You can picture Naomi grabbing her paperback, her thousand Hebrew names that rhyme, and so she's flipping through it, and she finds Melon and Chilion, and uh, she's like, okay, these will, these will work, these are good names, but do you know what they mean? Melon means puny, and Chilion means whiny. So, you know, some of you are like, hey, that's my kids, <laughs> right? That's a... Malon and Chilean, puny and whiny. What a pair this would have been. Now, how far they have come from leaving Bethlehem. Naomi's focus was not, even, was not even purposeful in choosing the names for her sons to be that which would recognize God. It was just going to be names that rhymed in the Hebrew language. And, and now here they are looking that grass is greener somewhere else. And now they have lost their sight. What does that look like for us today? Now, I'm going to list several things, but again, none of these are bad in and of themselves unless it is a wrong focus that gets ahead of God. Think about moving your family, and family moving is a big thing, and several of you have been a part of that, and sometimes that happens with work, and sometimes it happens with retirement, and sometimes it just, it just happens as a part of the plan, but when that opportunity for a family move comes, what is your first priority? Is it looking for a place to live that's going to be perfect for the family? Or is it that I'm moving into an area that's got a good gospel-centered church that I will find my family to be engaged with a place of fellowship and partnership that I will continue to thrive and grow in my spiritual journey? So a family move is not a bad thing, but what is the priority within that family move? Maybe it's a career change. Maybe it's with that career change, it's only looking at gaining more money because what that equals is more hours, more trips, more time away from the family. It's a disconnect from church and it's a, a slow fade away from God. It's an outside distraction that, again, is important. We have to work, we have to earn income so that we can pay our bills so that we can just go back and do it all over again, okay? And that's just a part of what happens in life. But then there's the hobby experiences and we kind of excuse it by saying, well, God wants me to enjoy his creation. On a Sunday morning, I'll go out on the lake, I'll go in the gulf, I'll go see the mountains. On Sunday morning, I'll go to God's Disney World, and um, I'm going to miss church, but it's okay. 
And then it becomes patterns in our lives. What, what, what once used to pierce our hearts with conviction has now become a passing thought of mere pettiness. <laughs> why, am I, why am I even second-guessing that anymore? You used to bother me, but I'm changed. I'm living in liberty. You know, I'm just, I'm in grace. So why does that bother me? It, it just doesn't bother me anymore. And all of a sudden, we, we desensitize the Holy Spirit's work. We've quenched the Holy Spirit. And we're okay. And, and happiness is grass greener on the other side. And so whatever I need to do to pursue that, nothing will get in my way. Until one day you wake up and the new crisis has taken place. Verse 3, 4, and 5 is the results of the crisis. The crisis can lead to compromise, and one crisis can lead to another if we're not careful. That's what's happened here. The first crisis was, was understandable. I mean, there was nothing that Elimelech and Naomi could do about it. Bethlehem was in a famine. Elimelech's thinking, what do I do to provide for my family? What do I do to protect for them? Remember, his name means God is my king, but instead of looking to God as his king and his guide and his provider and his comfort and what his source of all help, he says, I'm going to take my family and move to a place where God would not be glorified and God would not be blessed. And so he moves to the pagan place of Moab. So the one crisis now has led to a major crisis, and that crisis is that Elimelech dies. And then his two sons, they take up wives, Orpah, which... Um, is one of the daughter-in-laws, and then Ruth. And then these men die. So in typical order of studying the book of Ruth, we all get really emotional about the very fact that we're dealing with three widows from the very beginning. And we think, how in the world could this happen? Like, I mean, what, is God really fair? Until we look at the backstory and realize the crisis that led to another crisis. The story of decisions that were made on the behalf of a sinful heart that chose not to follow God's way. When you look at the progress of sin or the progression of walking away from God, look at it in our text. Verse number one, a certain man went to sojourn. That refers to a temporary stay. That's like a stranger in a new land. That's just being there for a little while. But then in verse number two, they came into the land of Moab and they continued there. Well, the word continued there is a word for settling down. It's the word to remain. Then verse number four, they dwelled there about 10 years. Wow. I mean, Elimelech may have been thinking to himself, listen, I'm not going to put my family in harm's way. We're not going to follow the false gods and, 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 and sacrifice our children. We're not going to get caught up in the immorality, but all of a sudden, the sojourner became somebody who continued until it had been 10 years. A pathway that said, just a little while. You know what it looks like for us today in the 21st century? It says, just a little look. It'll be quick. Or just a little build up. Maybe a tiny sip. I won't become addicted. Maybe it's a little lie. I won't become a liar. For just a little while we stay, just a click of the mouse. We excuse it by saying, I need comfort during my crisis, so I'm going to look for greener grass. Hey, preacher, if you knew about my crisis right now, if you knew about my famine in Bethlehem, you would realize I have good reasons to take a little longer look. You would know that I have good reasons to take a little flirtation. 
You know that I would have good reasons to click on the mouse. You know that I would have good reasons to give and offer that lie. And all of a sudden, we have desensitized ourselves, and we've talked ourselves into being excused to walk away from the things of God. That's what Elimelech has done. He says, just a little while. I'm just going to sojourn until things calm down in Bethlehem. The boys, they're going to understand it. We'll keep a close eye on the boys. We're not going to let culture uh, saturate their heart and mind until you realize these boys, they grew up and they married a woman from Moab, not from their hometown of God's chosen people, but of the pagan people of Moab. So parents, don't think that the culture around you cannot negatively affect and impact your children. Don't think that you can put them out there for the wolves to devour, but you're going to still be a little protective and still try to hope to guide them the correct way. Because the culture and the world, the enemy is super powerful. And they will do everything they can to destroy at the very foundation of your home, your marriage, and your family. So here's the results. Wrong decisions often follow other wrongful decisions. Your story does not have to be written this way. You you do not have to add one wrong decision after another. But if you're not careful, they will add up. God is always looking for renegades ready to return. He is eager to repent or eager for you to repent, and he's wanting you to be restored. And so look to him and return. Quit making one wrong decision after another. Quit following up sin with another sin. Quit desensitizing the Holy Spirit. Quit trying to take life by, its, by yourself. Quit trying to eliminate God's leading. Quit trying to be wise in your own mind. Quit trusting in your own ways. Remember to always look to God as your wisdom and as your strength. We live in a day when too many Christian families are just trying to make decision after decision without God having any part of it. And all of a sudden, you look up one day and you're like, how in the world did this new crisis take place? It's because God was never considered. It's because God's way was never important. Because you wanted to pretend like you would just be a sojourner to just be there temporarily. Until you realized you continued and settled, and 10 years later, the new crisis happens. Our sense makes no sense when it is not God's sense. Because of our deceitful hearts, disobedience can actually begin to make sense to us. (laughs) That's a dangerous place to be. We have fooled ourselves, and now we begin to fool others around us. Our sense makes no sense when it's not God's sense. And so don't rely on your deceitful heart, because disobedience can be destructive. Number three, the source of grief comes when we chase greener grass over the glory of God. Sir, ma'am, do you realize that sometimes God wants you to just live in this place and in this moment so that he would be glorified? Instead of you moving on to greener grass so that you can be fulfilled? Remember, it's not about us being happy. And by the way, on the opposite side, it doesn't mean, okay, well, being a Christian and following God means being desperate and sad, means being in despair all the time. No, because true joy is found 
And so the source of our grief comes when we, we look to chase other elements over God's glory. Husbands, lead your home for the glory of God. Uh, ladies, raise your kids to the glory of God. Always direct everything to the glory of God. Senior saint, pour into others for the glory of God. Make decisions this week for the glory of God. In 1 Corinthians 10.31, it tells us whether therefore you eat, drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And so we can quote that verse and we can rattle it off, but living it means a completely different thing. And so this week, with your entertainment choices, with your conversations you're going to have, with the decisions you make for your life and for others that you impact, whatever it is, do it for God's glory, not so that you can find fulfillment with the greener grass. And then number four, famine in the will of God is better than feasting in the way of the world. A short trip became a 10-year stay. Three funerals and three fresh graves later, she's looking around her trying to find out what happened. No doubt this brought her to her senses. Because as we're going to find next week, Ruth or Naomi is going to return home. She's going to go back to the will and the way of God. And whiny, it's the end of their story, of her story. It's the end of Elimelech. It's the end of puny and whiny. It's the end of their story. Thanks, Elimelech. But thankfully, Naomi's story is going to be written so different from here. And she is going to show us a picture of grace. Oh, I, I know from here on out, everything's focused on Ruth. But we're going, to, we're going to find that Naomi played such a key role and part of helping Ruth to find God's will and God's way. So this is not the end. Now a pastor tells the story of one of his former members. She was an unlikely candidate for choosing a rebel lifestyle. She was a homeschooling mother of nine children, and she was committed, a committed wife for more than 25 years. Nine children, homeschool mom, married for 25 years. But one day she announced to her husband that she was leaving the family and her marriage for another man that she had met online. To the shock of both husband and children, her youngest was six, her oldest was 24. She turned her back on her family and completely walked away. She left her husband with these words. She said, I've given you and this family 25 years of my life. It's now time for me. The trouble is she left everything behind except for a guilty conscience. That would never leave her alone. She didn't make it too long with her wealthy new friend, but she eventually married another man. She started drinking along the way, and she stayed medicated all day long to try to numb the searing pain of the guilt that she had. Eight short years after leaving her family, she died of liver disease. Her stay in Moab was not quite as long as the runaway Elimelech and his two rebel sons. But nonetheless, this was a crisis that she could have avoided. When you leave the paths of obedience, you invite pain to become your traveling companion. Greener grass often is disguised as greater grief. So we must learn and take note that the crisis we all should avoid is not death, but it's walking away from the will and the ways of God. Will you do everything you can in your power to avoid that crisis in your life?